Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogony Europe. Today is Sunday, September 27th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Before Alfred the Great, there were few Anglo-Saxon kings who had any degree of care for learning and refined culture. One of them was Alfred of Northumbria, who preceded Alfred the Great by nearly 150 years. But Alfred of Northumbria only had an opportunity for learning when he himself was passed over for the throne by the Witena, or the Anglo-Saxon council, and his brother received his father's kingdom. Rather than fight the decision because Alfred was the older brother, Alfred retired to Ireland and received an education in the scriptures and other literature. Alfred gained the throne 15 years later upon the death of his brother. After Alfred himself had died, soon following Alfred to the throne was Colewulf, the patron of the English church historian Bede. In Book 3, Chapter 9 of his History of the Anglo-Saxons, Sharon Turner says, The effect of Alfred, meaning Alfred of Northumbria, the effect of Alfred's reign and habits in this province became visible in Kilwolf, who succeeded to his throne. This prince, who succeeded in 731, was the patron to whom Bede addressed his ecclesiastical history of the English nation. In the dedication, the venerable father of Anglo-Saxon learning says that it was this king's delight not only to hear the scriptures read, but to be well acquainted with the deeds and sayings of his illustrious predecessors. From this feeling, he had desired Bede to compose his history, but the flame which Alfred had kindled in his dominions, was soon afterwards quenched there by the sanguinary civil contests that succeeded. It burnt, however, with a cheering influence in the other provinces of the Octarchy. Bede and Alcuin may be considered as two of the valuable minds which it had excited. So Sharon Turner gives credit to Alfred of Northumbria for inspiring the learning of Keowulf, who became the patron of Bede, and even of the later Alcuin. However, the flame which ignited Anglo-Saxon appreciation for learning and literature certainly was quenched until the appearance of another great Saxon king. And here today we have Sven Longshanks to discuss the life of a later Alfred called Alfred the Great, the king of Wessex for 28 years until 899 AD, and a man with an amazing legacy acquired over a life of only 50 short years. Of him, Sharon Turner says in Book 4, Chapter 4 of his history, Nothing is more curious nor more interesting in history than to remark that when a great politic, that when great political exigencies occur, which threaten to shake the foundations of a civil society, they are 
usually as much distinguished by the rise of sublime characters with genius and ability sufficient to check the progress of evil and even to convert its disasters to benevolent issues. One of these extraordinary persons was Alfred the Great and considered with regard to the time of his appearance the great ends which he achieved and the difficulties under which he formed himself, no historical character can more justly claim our attention and admiration than our venerated king. First, however, Sven would like to, I believe, discuss the brutal side of the Saxon psyche. Hello, Sven. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Bill. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I, I, I think... Um we should show just what the Saxons were like before they actually became Christianized. Because you've got a lot of people that idolize um, what we were like back when we were pagans. But they were really barbarians that just, um, they were treacherous, traitorous, set fire to things. And yet once they had become Christianized, once we get to Alfred the Great, I mean, he was just a, an awesome Christian hero, really. I mean, he really does deserve the title Alfred the Great, which he didn't receive until um, a century or so after his actual death. But just to give an idea of what the um, Saxons were like, I'm going to quote from a history book from 1850, and it's the British Cymru, or Britons of Cambria, outlines of their history and institutions from the earliest to the present times. And uh, he's basically collected all these early sources on history. It's a Welshman that's um, writing this. <coughs> And uh, he begins talking about the Saxons in this quote here. The kings of the German tribes, writes Sismondi, were only conspicuous by their crimes and vices. They were above the law, and it would be difficult to find in any class of men, even among those whom public justice has consigned to the hulks and galleys, so many examples of atrocious crimes, assassinations, poisonings, and above all fratricides, as these royal families afforded during the 5th, 6th and 7th centuries. The German nations whom they ruled were accustomed to consider their kings as a race apart, distinguished from themselves by their long hair, a race not subject to the same laws nor moved by the same feelings. These kings, keeping themselves aloof from all other men, were singular in having family names and in intermarrying with each other. And we owe to them the introduction of relationship between crowned heads, which was before then unknown in the world. From Clovis to Charles Martel, the grandfather of Charlemagne, states Irie Crow, the last English historian of France, there existed not a personage worthy of the reader's attention. There is not recorded an event or anecdote which would excite any feeling but disgust. This observation will apply with nearly equal force to all the Saxon kings before Alfred. These and the rest of the invading nations continued pagans long after they had quartered amongst them the conquered provinces. The old Celto-Roman population was reduced to serfdom. The heads of the barbarian clans became kings by, as it was afterwards, impiously termed, divine right. The inferior chiefs became barons or owners of the land and its serfs. The Roman civil law, by which the continent had been ruled, was abolished, and the feudal system, 
was at first rudely but afterwards systematically imposed. The feudal system regarded the people as an inferior species of mankind to those kings and chiefs who traced their descent to Balti or Odin, the pagan gods or idols, and who in right of it claimed exemption from all human laws and responsibility. To this system of mingled heathenism, brute force and servility, the Britain of these islands never ceased to present a front of scorn and hostility, hence the deadly and protracted nature of the wars which ensued between him and the German or serf nations with whom it originated. Of all the nations, however, whom the carcass of the great empire allured from their lagoons and forests, overtowering the rest as a species by himself, stood forth the Saxon of the seas. His name among the non-marine populations of the continent inspired inexpressible terror. A fabulous attachment to the wave and the storm, rioting in the undisputed possession of the ocean, their very religion, combat and havoc, the Saxons had established a prestige above Goth, Vandal or Hun for cruelty and insensibility to danger. Of apparent ubiquity, formidable alike from their innate solidity, their effective arms, their habit of closing in dense columns with their enemies, their invasion might have shaken the framework of the Roman Empire in its zenith. The Saxon Confederation extending from the mouths of the Rhine to the lower Baltic, consisted of various tribes of Gothic extraction, the principal of which were the Saxons, Sacae, Jutes, Gete, and Angles, occupying the territory south and southwest of the Cumbric Chersonese, Denmark. The Chersonese itself was peopled by the descendants of the ancient Cumbri, between whom and the Saxons a mortal antagonism prevailed, Uniting with the Scandinavian tribes of Lochlin, Norway, these became the Danes and Normans of the 9th, 10th and 11th centuries, carrying with them wherever they went their old hatred of their Saxon neighbours. The Saxon confederation diverged into two branches, one striking inward, extending its acquisitions so far that Egenhard, the secretary of Charlemagne, states that AD 800 they constituted more than one half of Germany. This was continental Saxondom. It was subdued and added to the Franco-German Empire by Charlemagne, its Saxon population being nearly exterminated. The other threw itself in a series of invasions from AD 420 to AD 580 on the British island, rested 220 years after its first landing, i.e. in the sixth generation, the Pandragonate or military supremacy from the Cymri, and fusing with the British Logrians and Corinayad became the main stock of the modern English. Their sovereignty gave way AD 1014 temporarily to the Danish and permanently to the Normans AD 1066, as the Norman gave way in turn to the native British restored AD 1485. Close quote, and he's referring to the Tudor kings there in 1485. And that gives you an idea of the antagonism towards the Saxons and the way that they behaved. I, I, do, I don't know if you want to um, add anything to that quote or your thoughts on that, Bill, before I just give a brief um, recap of the history that we've given so far of the Saxons in Britain. Well, well that's, that, that's it. It's incredible to me that these um, neo-pagans want to glorify 
pre-Christian Europe, when pre-Christian Europe was, um, I know that the, the, the history of the Christian nations of Europe have, have been, that the centuries have been filled with, with, with war and, and, and competition for dominion among the various kings. So it, it, it really hasn't been, um, free of barbarism by any means but before the um, Christian Christian Christianization of the Germanic tribes barbarism what was the way of life and the Saxons are especially the um, the Saxons of the continent are the pinnacle of that barbarism that, that they were um Attacking the Franks, and and we talk about white identity. That the, the the barbaric pagan tribes of Europe had no concern whatever for white identity. When Charles Martel was fighting off the Muslims from France, the Saxons were were, were looting and pillaging the Franks on the other end of France from from Germany. And, and, and from Central Europe. That there's, um, absolutely no glory or civility or care for ethnic identity whatever in, or, or ethnic brotherhood whatever in pagan European history. The Saxons were simply pirates and robbers and looted and pillaged every other white tribe that they could until after Charles Martel had um, successfully fought off the Muslims until he turned his attention to the Saxons and started attempting to suppress their barbarism and, and that was finished for the most part with Charlemagne who had to Con- for the preservation of Europe, had to convert the Saxons by the sword to Christianity. That now it's um, a commonly repeated lie that all Germanic tribes were converted to Christianity by the sword. That's not true at all. Before um, before Charles Martel, even Bede had written about the. Um, missionaries from the Celtic church as well as from the Roman who were attempting to convert some of the tribes of Germany from from Britain <laughs> and and um, many missions were conducted up to the time of Bede from Britain trying to convert Germans to Christianity many of the earlier Germanic tribes had converted to Christianity voluntarily, willingly. Many of the Goths, the Franks, the Alans, and, and their predecessors in, in Western Europe, the British, of course, and, and the Irish, and the Gauls, took Christianity willingly. So, so it's a lie that most of the Northern European nations were converted by the sword. Most of them were converted willingly. Some of them were converted by the sword because it was the only way to civilize them. Oh, yeah, I know they were pretty barbaric. I think uh, Wolfilas was Saint Wolfilas was a really early saint that um, converted the Goths and translated the Bible, um, the New Testament, into 
Gothic, according to some of the legends that are written about him. And as, as far as I know, it, it was only there was one particular massacre of Charlemagne massacred one particular group of pagans, but that that was I think in the 700 and something or other. And that was a group of Saxons, and this is the massacre that the. the so-called today's pagans will talk about as if that was the case for all of them but as you as you were saying but it was it was in order to civilize them and if you look at the history of of what happened when they came to britain you, you get a, another idea of what they were like uh, they first came in in, in 435 a.d and they were invited in by vortigern who had put himself on the throne and, and the rightful kings he'd sent off to Amorica because they were fairly young. And uh, straight away he, get, he gets drunk with Hengist and Horsa and Hengist brings his daughter out, Ronwen, and Vortigern is besotted with Ronwen. So he gives the whole county of Kent to Hengist in order for his daughter's hand in marriage. So, of course, the, the Celts are not very happy about this, that, um, especially not the rightful ruler of Kent. So the Saxons are ordered to leave and Vortigern is deposed. Vortimer, his son or his cousin, he gets made king, but Ronwen poisons him. So once he's poisoned, Vortigern is made king again and he invites the Saxons back again. And he says, no more than 500 of you turn up. 300 vessels arrive. You know, practically, this is a whole uh, migration in, invasion force of Saxons turn up. So they, suge they suggest what is called a love day, which is where they would meet up under a white flag in a certain area to discuss the terms of peace so that they could share the island between them. You know, the, the British people were quite happy to share parts of their island with, with these other nations if they came in peace and wanted to work, work with, with the Britons. There's, there's lots of records of that happening um, from before the Romans came. But uh, So they arranged to have this what's called as a love day, and they meet up. But unbeknownst to the, uh, the Celtic chivalry and all the nobles, every one of the Saxons has got one, a boot knife hidden in his boot and when Hengist says let us now speak of friendship and love they're all supposed to pull their boot knives and murder all the nobles and they massacred 480 of, of the British chivalry at this love day this feast of peace where they were supposed to be uh, just civil to one another and they actually massacred them and then they piled up all the bodies and just left them there to rot and the, the legend is that that's where you get the word Stonehenge from. It's Hengist's stones, because they, it was supposedly happened in that area, and that was a monument to them. That was a myth, obviously, because Stonehenge had been there for a lot longer than that, but that, that's a myth that comes from that time. And the, the, the word that then went around the country was death to the man that trusts the stranger. And Ambrosius and Uther, who were the, um, the two young kings that have been sent to Amorica, they get brought back, because just about all the nobles have been killed. But they have lots of battles, they have wars with the, with the Saxons. In 519, Uther's son Arthur, King Arthur, manages to subdue the Saxons, and you get a gap in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle of uh, about 30 years, which is the reign of Arthur. And then Arthur dies, the Saxons gain the upper hand again. Augustine arrives, St. Augustine, in 597. Now, it's over 500 years since um, Britain had, had actually been Christian. 
and uh, he try he tries to get the the Celtic Christians to give fealty to the Pope, and they say, well, we'll treat him just like any other Christian brother. But you know, we've been at war with Rome for years, and uh, why should we see him as any different to any other Christian? So Augustine says, well, right, well, because of that, you know, you're going to be punished for this. And he tells the Saxons, you have my permission to, to attack them. But so far, all that's been Christianized in England, out of the Saxons, is Kent. And in 607, the Saxons, Northumbrian Saxons, this is a pagan king called Ethelfrith. He massacres 1,200 priests who were unarmed at prayer. And he massacres them all. And then he goes to Bangor University, because you had universities in Britain, these Druidic universities... It became Christian universities, and the Druids and the Christians worked alongside one another. The Druids became bishops, and, and I think this is why you, you know you have a lot of crossover between what we're told of the old Druids and and the the Christian religion. But they massacred 1,200 priests. They, they set fire to the universities, and this is just a, a symptom of the way that these Saxons behaved. They, they just destroyed all the universities, all the learning everything while they were pagans uh, but shortly after that 10-15 years after that the, the Northumbrians become Christian 655 the Mercians became Christian in 661 the Isle of Wight became Christian and shortly after that about 50 years after that you get to uh, King Alfred and Colwulf that you were talking about earlier Bill and they you get a bit of a, an, an upsurge in learning then and a bit of an upsurge in civilization. But by 787, the first fleet of the Vikings arrives and they start just attacking everything and destroying everything. Um, do you want to add a comment there, Bill, before I start going into a, a bit about when Alfred becomes king? Well, well, right. 787 would be about 50 years after... The, the time of um, the passing of Alfred of Northumbria and the reign of, of Colwulf, his successor, and the time of Bede, that there was um, that there were probably a few sparks of, of learning in that period. That's when Alcuin had actually been alive and writing. I think he was born. In, in 735 or something like that. But for the most part, <laughs> I mean, Anglo, the Anglo-Saxons may have reverted to absolute barbarism, especially under the threat of, of the Norsemen and the Viking invasions of England. If it weren't for Alfred the Great and, and then the, um, his own successor, Edward, when he, at, came to the throne, had had tried to, I believe, made a good run at maintaining Alfred the Great's legacy. Well, they did, uh, and Alfred the Great's um, daughter as well, the Lady of Mercia, Ethelfleet, as well. Once um, Alfred the Great had taken power and united England and also Wales were, um, uh, uh, were underneath him as well, then this sort of spread throughout the country and they had a bit of a, a golden age. But at the time when Alfred becomes king, I mean, the Saxons had no alphabet. They had Bede, but Bede had been writing in Latin. They did, Saxons didn't actually have an alphabet of their own and they couldn't understand Latin. I, the, the chronicle, the Anglo-Saxon chronicle, it says hi, 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 uh, Hibernia instead of Hiberna. 
So when it's talking about the Romans, it sends them, instead of sending them to winter quarters, it sends Caesar into Ireland, where they're making mistakes with Latin. And in uh, 878, so I'm going to jump forward a few years here, where there were not six priests in the whole of Saxondom that were competent in reading and writing. So Alfred sends to the Welsh church, which shows you that the Welsh church, the Celtic church, still had plenty of scholars and, and plenty of educated people. So he sends to the Welsh church for a priest to instruct him and to instruct his people. And this is Bishop Usher, who, is, who they think is named after Asher, uh, one of the tribes of Israel. And he's the guy that eventually writes the life of King Alfred which is where we get the majority of our information from. There's what this, this um, archbishop wrote about him. And then some people think that it was possibly intended for a Welsh audience. But the fact that this, it was a Welsh bishop writing about a Saxon king, and you know he gives him such a glowing review, I, it has to be truthful because nobody is going to hate the Saxons more than the Welsh. And yet this Welsh bishop who did exist, we got the records of him, and he was at St. David's. You know, he wrote this, this, this life of Alfred the Great, which was so positive. And at first he had to ask his people's permission, which shows you that these bishops back then, they were bishops for life, with, with the parish that they were in, and the people that they were in. They would watch them grow from, from being an infant to being parents and grandparents. I think it's still similar in the Eastern Orthodox Church today. If you become a priest, you stick with one area and one parish and that's it. So he had to ask his people's permission first, whether he could go to England to serve this Saxon king, uh, the king of um, Wessex. And they said that he could go there for half a year. So he would go there for three months and then come back to Wales for three months and then go back to England for three months and then back to Wales for three months. And uh, he didn't actually end up being able to go there for, the, for about a year or two because he was ill at first. Uh, and eventually he went over to England. And that's how we get um, our information about, most of our information about King Alfred from. And if you want to add anything to that, Bill? Well, well I just want, want to say that um, <clears throat> I wish I could have gotten my head around this. I've read it years ago. But I wish I could have gotten um, a, re a thorough or more thorough review of it before today's program. In, in the two-volume edition of Sharon Turner's History of the Anglo-Saxons, which I have in my possession, the, the portions covering the life of Alfred the Great span from pages 313 through 479, or about a third of the first volume. <laughs> that That's nearly a sixth of the total work. So, in, in a, um, they're small pages, but it's still, it's a third of the first volume is dedicated to the, um, the, the life and, and childhood and works of Alfred the Great, who only lived for 50 years, what, which is, pretty incredible that one man could have made that much of an impression on that this short period what what is it a 400 year period of english history so so um of anglo-saxon english history so so this asser or or usher whom you mention he is um 
evidently looking through the footnotes because Sharon Turner's history is um, very well cited. He is, without doubt, the most um, commonly cited source, and, and actually probably at least half of or two-thirds of the footnotes in these 140-something, 150-something pages, uh, I think 160-something pages, that Sharon Turner devoted to Alfred the Great. Most of it does come, seem to come from the man whom he calls Asser, A-S-S-E-R. You identified him with Bishop Usher? Uh, I mean, I wasn't familiar with that identification, but that's okay. Well, Usher or Asher, Asser, it's a similar thing to just different spellings, I think. Uh, they say, from what I've read, they say that they think it comes from uh, a, uh, a tribe of Israel that was called Asher. Uh, maybe, maybe the bishop picked that picked that name because because of that. Because at the time they would, when they became Christian, they would also change their names and take on a different name. And we see later on that um, a Viking takes on a different name, but he takes uh, the Viking king rather, uh, but he takes on a, a Saxon name rather than a rather than a Christian name. But a lot of this, a lot of the information that we do have about Alfred the Great is apocryphal, like the idea that he burned the cakes. That's apocryphal. But I think that comes from uh, the life of Saint Neot, which was written later. But I think in Victorian times, um, there was a big thing about Alfred the Great, and they were saying that he was the first one to start off the British Navy and uh, made statues of him. And he really, there was a really big thing about about him, um, big patriotic um, revival of Alfred the Great. And he, he wasn't really named Alfred the Great until a couple of hundred years after um, the time when he when he was actually king. But as you, as you see, there is, there is, what he actually did in his life was he, you know, just so remarkable. And the changes that he brought about in the country, and he basically just dedicated his life to God and put his trust in God, and he, he was well rewarded for that. And he shows you that you know, we don't have any great prime ministers. We don't have any great presidents. But when you get a king that really fulfills his uh, his task as, as being a king under God and obeys God's laws, then he's remembered forevermore. You know, over a thousand years later, and he's still the only British king to be named the Great afterwards. But, uh, I don't know if you want to add anything before I start going into his life, Bill. Well, well, yes, you had talked about um, the lack of writing in Saxon letters or, or in English letters. That That's um, absolutely true, and that's another huge mistake that these um, neo-pagans make in, in relying on these runes. The use of, of letters, which are today called runes, the runic alphabet, if you will, the use of that to write in the Gothic or Anglo-Saxon tongues it is a relatively late use it's not early the english did not write in their own letters all of the early english scholars wrote in latin the irish originally to a great degree wrote in latin the um greek writers had said of the Galatahi or the Germanic tribes of the east that they wrote in Greek they had their own language but they did not use their own language in written form 
that, that the runes are a late development, and all of the Germanic tribes, when they first um, began to make records, made them in Latin and Greek. Now, there are the Saxon Chronicles, which are written in a runic native alphabet, but that's a late development. It's it's not a um, a development which the Anglo-Saxons had learned on the continent. Well, yeah, the, the uh, Anglo-Saxon Chronicle came about with by by Alfred the Great, really, <coughs> and it was him that um, started translating stuff from Latin into English. And it's not really like the runes that you see today. I think the runes came more from the Danes, from the from the Vikings, who, according to um, R. W. Morgan, who I, who I quoted earlier, come from the Cumbri, anyway. And he's, so where he's saying that the, the Cymri had this animosity with the Saxons, that's the Cimmerians having animosity with the Scythians, yes. I would suggest. That's what he's, he's pointing to. So yeah, the, the Vikings may well have had runes, but the, the Saxons didn't, you know, they didn't, they didn't have their own writing. And the Celts, or the British Celts, the Welsh, they, they used this Ogham script. Like the Irish did, and we can still see this today. They, they are really old stones with Celtic crosses on and various other Christian symbols, types of cross, and they've got Latin inscriptions, and they've also got Ogham inscriptions along the side of it, which shows you that these the Celts, the Welsh, they had an alphabet and they were writing um, three four hundred A.D. Whereas after everything got destroyed, they were, they were just up in Wales, and, and there was nothing in, nothing in England. There was just the Celtic Church removed to Wales, which is where this bishop um, Asher was. Asher was. But when he starts to write about the life of King Alfred, he starts off with the family tree, and the family tree goes back through Shem to Noah, and back to Adam, and it also includes Woden in there. So straight away you've got a link going back to the so-called pagan gods, um, which would also include Odin, who was another king, and it goes back to Shem, and then back to Noah, and, and then back to Adam, which I, th- I think is pretty interesting just, just there, that it shows you this link going through to Shem, not to Japheth, not to Ham, and, and you know, it goes straight back to Shem and then back to Adam. Uh, it, as I say, it has Woden in there, but not Odin, but Odin himself was um, was a king. I mean, we were just, just discussing this just before we started, weren't we, Bill? Well, well right. According to um, Sharon Turner, Odin is a... Um, is, is supposedly a Germanic chieftain who lived in the 3rd century AD who led his people from Asa and established a kingdom in the north of Europe and when he died had willed various parts of his kingdom to various of his sons and from those sons are derived all of the um, kings of the northern Germany and and Scandinavia and Anglo-Saxon England and and the surrounding areas and the kings for instance in the Saxon Chronicles and other early material which Sharon Turner had um, had referenced they had counted their genealogies for many centuries as being 
um, that they that they counted themselves as being in the sixth generation from Odin, or in the ninth, or even the eleventh generation from Odin, a- and being descendants of Odin, that was how they they gave the um, the authority for holding their various kingdoms because they were descendants of Odin. Just like the um, ancient Trojan princes had been kings over many of the surrounding nations in, in Anatolia before the coming of the Greeks. Oh, yeah, and uh, Odin, I think he wrote the Havamol, or supposedly wrote the Havamol, so they tried to show that he had he had wisdom, so he was obviously a, an important king at the time. I think even Alfred the Great, they've attributed proverbs to him. But I think Alfred the Great probably did a bit, did more than King Odin, I mean, when you hear of some of his achievements, or rather at least we know about them, because we don't know much about the achievements of King Odin. We just know that he's there in, in the family tree. It, uh, Alfred's life, it starts off with fairly young. When he was five years old, he was sent to Rome, and he was living at Rome for a couple of years. And Pope uh, Leo, it says, ordains him and, as his adoptive son and confirms him. Now, he, Asser isn't quite clear about what he's saying here, because King Alfred was the youngest in the family. He, was, he had five, four brothers, and he was the youngest, so he, he wasn't supposed to be king. He ends up being king by default. Which is rather like Bashar Assad today. He's become king. He's become uh, president by default, and he's doing a really good job of it. But Alfred eventually became king by default because he was the only one left. Now, at the time, the, the Christians are fighting against the the Vikings or the pagans. So uh, I think he's probably sent to Rome for safety more than anything else. But while he's over there in Rome, he must have seen all this splendor and uh, what passed for technology at the time and, and a very, very advanced society compared to what he was used to seeing in um, Saxon England, especially when you, if you think that Saxon England is at war. And uh, in 855, his father, Ethelwolf, frees a tenth of the kingdom from royal service and tribute as an everlasting inheritance to the cross. So they were quite serious about their faith, quite serious about giving over their time and, and giving up their money to the church at the time. They, they took this very seriously. They believed in it. You know, It wasn't some way of gaining control over the population. Do you want to say something there, Bill? Well, well in... Um in Sharon Turner's history, Sharon Turner says that um, Ethelwolf had sent his father had sent Alfred to Rome with a great train of nobility and others, and that the Pope anointed him king. So that's a two-edged sword right there, right? At the request of his father, at Rome, it is expressly affirmed that King Al- the king, meaning Ethelwolf, loved Alfred better than his other sons. When the king went to Rome himself two years afterwards, he took Alfred with him because he loved him with superior affection. The presumption that he intended to make Alfred his successor, therefore, agrees with the fact of his paternal partiality. Now, Ethelwolf had problems when when he returned from Rome because one of his sons had usurped his kingdom while he was gone, and I don't think he ever fully recovered it, but I believe that Alfred later did. Well, yeah, that, that's, there was this intrigue against him. But he, he, what he ended up doing in order to keep the peace, he said, well, you have this part of the kingdom, and I'll have this part of the kingdom. 
So he managed to keep the peace and prevent there from being a civil war, which Asa attributes, you know, this is great wisdom being shown by King Ethelwolf. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and even though he says that, the, well, well, this is his, his favourite, so he's going to anoint him as king, you couldn't anoint, anoint somebody as king because you had the Witten. And, and it was the Witten that actually picked who the king was going to be, which was like the assembly of the nobles and the thanes. It had to be picked someone from the royal family, but they were the ones who said which, which one it was going to be. This was like the failsafe that was built in. So if one of the royal family was, you know, was no good, then there was no chance of him being made king, unless he was the last one left alive. If there are others that are left alive, the Witten, like the Parliament, w would pick somebody else. So uh, that's, this is why it's sort of unsure what exactly happened with the Pope. But some, it, basically, it was made out that he was he was uh, important person and he was going to be important. But two years, also, while um, Ethelwulf is there in Rome, he marries Judith, the daughter of Charles the Bald. Uh, or Charlemagne, and he married, so he's now married into this important um, uh, family on the on the continent. And he and this uh, Judith, this this daughter, is highly educated, and she's a she's a noble woman. And when Ethelwolf comes back, he actually puts her on the on the throne next to him, uh, which is a real sense of honour because the Saxons stopped doing that because the last time that they did that, well, there was a there was a queen who ended up poisoning all the king's friends and she even ended up poisoning the king himself and she was sent to Charlemagne and Charlemagne said will you, will you pick me or will you pick my son and she said well I will pick your son to marry because he's younger than you and he said well if you had picked me I'd have given you my son anyway as I am an old man but since you picked my son you're not going to have him you're going to go and you're going to run this convent and he sends her off to run this convent and then uh, she ends up getting caught in flagrante with uh, somebody in the convent and she even gets kicked out of the convent and from that time onwards the Saxons wouldn't allow a queen to be put on the throne with the king and they would not refer to her as queen either it would just be the king's wife and Ethelwulf changed all this by putting Judith um, on the throne next to him she, she was a good woman but eventually Ethelwulf dies and another one of Alfred's brothers another one who's a bit of a ne'er-do-well he ends up taking Judith to bed which is against even pagan laws as Asa says to two and a half lawless years of the country and they're still fighting against the Vikings and uh, eventually he dies. And then Ethelbert becomes king. He rules wisely for five years. And then he dies. And Ethelred becomes king. And Alfred is then 18. And he's now of, of fighting age. Um, and this is this is near, nearing the time when uh, he actually gets hold of Asa and they start recording things. But Alfred and, and Ethelred are then... Uh, it starts recording them fighting the Vikings. And there's one instance where Ethelred is still in his tent at prayer, and he will not leave the tent until his prayers are finished. Uh, but Alfred is keen to get out there and win the battle. So Alfred goes goes in front. This is before Alfred's king. This is when his brother is still king. And they win the battle. Eventually Ethelred comes out, and he finishes saying his prayers, and they kill thousands of Vikings. And it's seen as being by divine judgment that this has happened, because they're so pious. And then that year, Ethelred dies in 871. And Alfred finally becomes king. But not of very much, because 
almost all of the rest of the country has been taken over by the Vikings. They've right. virtually annihilated the entire country by this time. There have been eight battles in just one year. Every one of the Saxons has, has lost it. And he's in a really bad way. Uh, Alfred is in a, in a really, really bad way. <clears throat> There's a treaty with the Viking. They, they take, try and make a treaty with the Vikings, which they, they swear on their relics. But the Vikings, in their usual trek kill all the hostages and eventually by 878 Alfred is reduced to just a few nobles and thanes and he's surviving by foraging and he's living in these bogs these marshes and, and the, his people don't even know that he's alive still and the, the whole country is just reduced to ruins and then at, uh, <clears throat> at Easter he eventually makes a fortress uh, and, uh, at Athelney and then he appears to his people a couple of weeks after Easter at a conjunction of the various counties of uh, Wessex and Hastings and I think it's uh, Exeter or Devon so it's in the um, south of the country the southwest of the country and he, he rallies the people together to his cause and uh, things suddenly take a turn for the better and he goes to Eddington and there's a huge battle at Eddington there's a huge slaughter uh, they make a massive slaughter of the Vikings they make a camp in front of the Vikings stronghold they hold them to siege and the Vikings are starving and uh, eventually Alfred makes peace with them and he takes hostages from them but this time they don't take any hostages back and in this now comes the important part also at the time he converts King Guthrum of the Vikings to Christianity and he, Guthrum and 30 of his men accept baptism Alfred receives Guthrum as his adoptive son he remains with Alfred for 12 days being instructed in Christianity after this baptism there's a, an unbinding of the chrism on the 8th day which is an orthodox custom so it shows you that Britain was part of the orthodox church rather than a catholic custom and Guthrum and his men keep the treaty for the rest of their days. Guthrum becomes known as Ethelstan, he changes his name. And this um, baptism, it was basically saying that Guthrum was now Alfred's adoptive son. So Alfred was taking a paternal, was looked up to. He was the paternal side that was giving a gift to the to his son, to his younger son, and making him his adoptive son. And this was a custom that goes back to Clovis, when Clovis became Christian and he accepted baptism. And it, the baptism at the time was an outward sign that uh, they had become Christian. And once they'd become Christian, they could stay in the country and they could settle. And up till because up, up till this point, the Vikings had just invaded, plundered whatever they could, set fire to things, then got in their ships and gone back again. Whereas this first time, uh, Guthrum then sets up farming and he colonises East Anglia. And this is a real change in, in fortune, basically, for King Alfred, because he's won this huge battle. He hasn't gotten any more trouble from this particular set of Vikings. And, and the other Vikings in the country, they end up leaving for, for France. And, and this is at the time when uh, Alfred then writes to Asa, Bishop Asa, and, and asks him to come and teach to him. He basically, he, he uh, says there were no good scholars in the entire kingdom of the West Saxons at that time. And he missed the liberal arts, which is probably what he'd got a hankering for at Rome. 
and he laments that at this right age and right time he has no teachers so he he calls for Asa to come and teach to him uh, I don't know if you want to add anything there Bill well, well you you I'm, I'm sorry you got way ahead of me there with um a, a pretty lengthy survey that the um battle which produced Alfred's restoration I mean Alfred was humiliated for a long time right he, he was actually a fugitive he he was in, accused of misconduct I'm, I'm not sure of the details and, and then he had a long period of virtual seclusion before a battle was fought in which he was restored I, I yeah, didn't know um, if, if, if you um, could actually expound on that or not. Well, I'm not sure he was, he was a, accused of anything. I just know that they, he ended up, they ended up losing everything. And uh, a lot of the people fled for the continent. And the only county that hadn't actually been taken was Wessex. The, all the other um, parts of the country, Mercia and um, London... Kent, all those areas had been taken over by the by the Vikings. So they had a a vassal king, a puppet king, in one place, um, and, and it looked like everything was lost. And he was just in in these marshes, and uh, he because he was also very ill, and, and he was always always quite ill. And this was one of the things that he did. He he actually. He was so pious, I was going to talk a bit more about his, his life in a bit, up to this point, but he was, he was, he really took his, his faith seriously, and when he got to puberty, and he started having carnal thoughts, he really didn't want these carnal thoughts, and he, he prayed to the Lord that the Lord would give him an affliction to distract him from thoughts of a fleshly nature, and he was given piles. So it was like he, you know, he, always, he prayed for a, an affliction, and, he, and by miracle he was given piles. And then on um, the eve of his wedding night, obviously, he, he, you know, he didn't want piles anymore. So he prayed to the Lord that the Lord would remove these piles from him and exchange it for another affliction, which happened, and, and he changed it for for another affliction. And, and you know, I mean, this. It may sound daft or funny, but you're not going to put that in there unless it's true. You know, you're not going to say that the guy prayed for piles and, and he was miraculously given piles. This is the king. You know, he's not going to, that's not going to be in there unless it's actually true because it, you know, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't put him in a very good light to be talking about those sorts of aspects of the king, even though it's a miraculous occurrence. But there were, there were other miracles that um, happened to him. But I, I don't know about, um, uh, accusations against him, Bill, other, other than, you know, the kingdom was lost and he was on his last legs. I'm trying to pin it down in Sharon Turner. He's speaking about um, an, an incident of new supplies from the Baltic, that the arrival of new supplies from the Baltic could not have broken the spirits of the Saxons so suddenly and reduced them to despair as probable, because the West Saxons had not, for the last seven years, undergone a miserable havoc in their persons and property, and had exerted no vigorous actions in their own defense, 
against the incursions of the Norsemen of the Danes. So far from being reduced to necessity of despair, we shall find it a single summons from the king when he recovered his self-possession and resolved to be the heroic patriot was sufficient to bring them eagerly to the field. Through the undisputed occupation of the country for some months must have rendered the collection of an adequate force more difficult and its hostilities far less availing than before. The king is not stated to have troubled them with exhortations to defend their prince, their country, and their liberties before he retired. And it is remarkable that the foes whom he had left at Chippenham he found near Westbury when he made the effort which produced his restoration. Amid all the confusion, emigration, and dismay which his conclusion must have produced, twenty miles composed the extent of their intermediate progress. The invaders, whose conquests, when unresisted, were so circumscribed, and whose triumphs were afterwards destroyed by one well-directed effort, meaning Ed Alfred's restoration, could not have exhibited that gigantic port which intimidates strength into imbecility and ensures destruction by annihilating the spirit that might avert it. I'm reading Sharon Turner, and it's it, it's something it, it's something which is quite ambiguous, like Turner didn't want to get to the point or something. To understand this obscure incident, it is necessary it is necessary to notice some charges of misconduct which have been made against Alfred. The improprieties alluded to are declared to have had political consequences and have been connected with his mysterious seclusion, meaning the time that he he was basically um, at the lowest point in his career. It may be most impartial to review the traditional imputations in all their extent and then to consider from the confessions of Asser how much it is reasonable to believe or to reject. An ancient life of St. Neot, a kinsman of Alfred, exists in Saxon, in the Saxon language, which alludes, though vaguely, to some impropriety in the king's conduct. It says that Neot chided him with many words and spoke to him prophetically, O king, much shalt thou suffer in this life. Hereafter, so much distress shalt thou abide, that no man's tongue may say it all. Now, love a child, hear me if thou wilt, and turn thy heart to my counsel. Depart entirely from thine unrighteousness, and thy sins with alms redeem, and with tears abolish. Another ancient manuscript life of St. Neot is somewhat stronger in its expressions of reproach. It says that Neot, reproving his bad actions, commanded him to amend that Alfred, not having wholly followed the rule of reigning justly, pursued the way of depravity. That one day, when the king came, Neot sharply reproached him for the wickedness of his tyranny and the proud austerity of his government. It declares that Neot foresaw and foretold misfortunes. Why do you glory in your misconduct? Why are you powerful but in iniquity? You have been exalted, but you shall not continue. You shall be bruised like the ears of wheat. Where then will be your pride? It, it seems to me that... that um. Sin is is being attributed to Alfred to explain 
how he was put out of his kingdom and and forced into seclusion. And, And perhaps, perhaps that is a revisionist view by the Saxons of his time. And, and I don't know if we will ever get to the truth because the charges that Sharon Turner lists seem to be so vague and obscure, right? So, so perhaps this churchman it is attributing sin to the, to the reason why Alfred was put out of his kingdom and, and, um, he certainly gains it back later on and and is restored after a um after about six months in retreat, according to Sharon Turner. Alfred revolved in his mind the means of surprising the main army of the Northmen, which still continued in Wiltshire. It was encamped on and about Bratton Hill at Edendon near Westbury, and it is a tradition which some of the most respectable of our ancient chroniclers have recorded, that he resolved to inspect their camp in person before he made the attempt. His early predilection for Saxon poetry and music had qualified him to assume the character of a harper, and thus disguised he went to the Danish tents. His harp and singing excited notice. He was admitted to their king's table. He heard their conversation and contemplated their position unsuspected. This is attributed to Alfred. He quitted their encampment without molestation and reached his little isle in safety. There is no nothing improbable in the incident, nor is it inconsistent with the manners of the time. It was now Whitsuntide. He sent confidential messengers to his principal friends in three adjacent counties, Wilts, Hampshire, and Somerset, announcing his existence, declaring his intention of joining them and repairing them to collect their followers secretly and to meet him in military array on the east of Selwood Forest. A dream of St. Neots, the same cousin that had been accusing him, appearing to him and promising him both assistance and a great success is placed at this crisis. It may have been suggested by the king's policy or may have occurred naturally from his memory of his sacred mentor, of his sacred monitor, I'm sorry, and anticipating its encouraging effects, he may have circulated it among friends. A celebrated place called the Stone of Egbert was the appointed place of meeting, as the Anglo-Saxons had suffered severely in his absence. The tidings of his being alive and the prospect of his reappearance filled every bosom with joy. All who were entrusted with the secret crowded enthusiastically to the place appointed, and the horns, trumpets, and clashing of the arms of those who came and those who welcomed the loyal patriots loudly expressed their mutual congratulations and exultations. Two days were passed in these arrivals and rejoicings and in making the necessary arrangements for consequent, for the consequential exertion, meaning an attack against the Danes. Some rumors of what was preparing reached the ears of Godrun, the Danish king, but nothing to explain the meditated blow. 
He called in his forces to be prepared, but as he saw no collected enemy, he had no object before him to move against. On the third day, Alfred marched his new raised army to Ahiglia, seized an adjoining hill, encamped that night there, and again reconnoitred his enemy's position. In the morning they advanced rapidly to the place called Ethendun, where the northern myriads were overspreading the plain. I'm going to read perhaps another paragraph and a half. Alfred halted to form them into a skillful arrangement and made a short but impressive address. He reminded them that they were about to combat both for their country and for themselves. He conjured them to act manly and to he promised them a glorious victory. They advanced when he had concluded and soon beheld the invading warriors before them. But whether resting in her camp or arrayed for battle is not clearly expressed. The attack was meant by the secrecy and celerity, celerity of the movement to be a surprise and most probably was so. And the expressions used by most of the chroniclers implied a circumstance. The Anglo-Saxons rushed on their enemies with an impetuosity which disordered valor was unable to withstand. It was Alfred who led them on, who seemed to have risen from his grave to destroy them. And Turner goes on to um, explain the battle from the chroniclers and the victory and subsequent restoration of Alfred. So so he was basically put out of his kingdom, forced to live in swamps for um, quite some time as a fugitive, accused of some sin by, by his own cousin, who was later a saint, and made a basically miraculous comeback. Yeah, I, I, that comes from um, apocryphal, or written afterwards, the Saint Neot um, stuff about him. Because the, the in the life, it talks about the Saint Neot, the uh, church of, of Saint Neot. And I think Saint Neot is, is an older saint from then. And there's also a bit about the cakes that he burnt. They were supposed to be in Saint Neots. They were also supposed to be in a swine herds. And all these legends sprang up afterwards and the accusation of impropriety even before the um see what they used to think if anything bad happened there had to be a reason for it and the reason had to have been you had offended god in some way well so well that's a christian belief as, right? yes he had to have done something wrong for him to have the kingdom taken away while he was foraging well well saint neat seems to I, I mean the accusation is very um ambiguous, but it seems to be attributed to Alfred's pride and arrogance. Whether that's true or not is immaterial. That That's the way it seemed to be reading. Because uh, before the, the the Danes even turned up in their ships, there was a, a prophet uh, that had gone to the king and said, look, because you're, 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 um, you're sinning, you're going to be invaded by these people and they're going to destroy the country. 
if you don't if you don't start you know buck your ideas up and start uh, obeying the law and start you know doing what God wants you to do you're going to be invaded this happened a lot in, in, at that time the the priests would have these visions of things like this you know they, and they would say look if you if you, if you don't start um obeying the commandments obeying the laws and behaving like a Christian then the Lord will take this country away from you they said this about they said this to the to the Celtic church when the when the Saxons arrived and it, it, this is what Augustine said said to the Celtic church as well you know the Saxons are going to be a divine punishment to you for not submitting to the, to Rome to the Roman church so all you know this happened quite a lot that people would get accused of the kings would be accused of impropriety and even if they hadn't been that would be the suspicion that people had that uh, they were being punished for something that they had done wrong so the, the fact that he that, that you know this this just shows you just you know how in a bad way that he actually was his people were turning against him accusing him of um impropriety he was forced to scrubbing around in marshland to try and find something to eat all the others had either gone to the continent you know the other kings had gone to the continent he was just the last one left there and it all seemed that all seemed at a loss you know what was he going to do as something happened to change him around and it doesn't really say in the, in the life of Asa but it may have been these visions of Saint Neot that may have been what it was, because Saint Neot does feature in, in the life of Asa, but as as the um, as one of the churches that he goes to, I think, or the relics. So that's a, a, an apocryphal story. These these legends that, that sort of came up around him, and, and after after this this um, of Eddington. There are other battles that he wins, but the main thing was that uh, he defeated Guthrum, and he managed to get Guthrum to become baptised and, and to become Christian. And once he had done that, and there was a bit of peace in the country, he was able to set about doing making all these changes. Like he brought in... Um, Schools. He set up education for everyone, not just uh, not just the rich people, but the sons sons of the nobles, sons of, of free men. He uh, set up, um, changed the laws, made certain that everybody, all the judges, could actually read. There's there's an apocryphal tale that he hanged 100 judges. Uh, he built uh, long ships like the Vikings' boats, but twice as long, which which turned out to be very effective. And this is why he gets attributed with first starting out the navy. And he started, tra he translated um, books from Latin to English. A miracle happened one day. He was reading Latin. Because when he got these, when he got um, Asa to come over to teach him, he also brought over Grimbald from France and uh, uh, somebody else who's just called John. And he would have them read to him all day long, they, they would read to him. You know, we don't realise how lucky we are today to be able to hear podcasts and, and hear, you know, hear people talking and, and explaining this stuff over the internet that we can hear. Nobody had that back then. Only the king had that. The king could have these teachers around him talking to him while he was going about his business, his kingly business. He would be read to from the classics all day long by these by these teachers. So it was almost like having talk radio going, but but with real people there doing it. One day, a miracle occurred, and he was reading Latin. The king was, and he was able to translate it into English. He was able to read the, the Latin and translate it into the English vernacular. 
And once he had done that, he set about translating these, these Latin books. He translated the Psalms. He translated the first 50 of the Psalms, translated Gregory's Pastoral Care, Bovius's Consolation of Philosophy, St. Augustine's Soliloquies, and he made all of these available, and he sent them out to the churches. And uh, he sent a, a copy of the Psalms to all the churches with a, with a pointer to read it with, and said that it must stay there in the church unless, unless the priest wishes to take it out. But it needs to be there so that people can read it. And he was, because he lamented the fact that, that there was no learning and no education in, in his land. And it, so he set these, these schools up. He also set up um, what were called the burghs, which became known as the boroughs. Like you have the London boroughs, and borough is a, is a second part to the names of various places in Britain, like a suffix to the name. And these boroughs were like burghs, like forts. He, he, he managed to galvanise the, the Saxon people to fortify their towns and to have a standing army so that while one lot of the army was on, the other lot was off. So they had a standing army all the time. And where these bergs were fortified, if the Vikings did turn up, they could all get inside the, the berg with, with the food that they needed and wait, send the alarm, set the, set the fires off or, or the smoke alarm or whatever way, and eventually the king would get there with, with, the, with his army, with his standing army, and they would chase the Vikings off. And this worked really well. And uh, it says in, in the life of King Alfred that those that didn't want to do this, you know, he said, well, don't do it then. And sure enough, the Vikings would then invade, and whatever place didn't obey his orders would then get trashed. So people were, were happy to obey him after seeing that and it says that he united the whole realm that the rich the, the rich the poor the free man the slave all of them were then working for the good of the realm whereas before they'd be you know the people had been out for themselves and you had this, this feudal way of doing things so this is why you know i say he's an anglo-saxon Europe because he he united the his nation and he was so good at uniting his nation that the welsh asked him to be their overlord because they were being mistreated by somebody else who was actually Welsh. And uh, eventually the one that was mistreating them also asked uh, Alfred to be their overlord. So he finally became the king of all England. He became the, styled the, the king of the Anglo-Saxons. He was the first one to be to actually be, be called that. And part of the things that he did, once he, would set, once he had set all this up, he was thanking God for it, and he said, well, now I'm going to devote half my time to the Lord, the whole half of my time. And then he thought, well, how can I do this? Because I can't measure the hours. How can I measure the hours? If I use a candle, it gets blown out. So he ended up getting a, an ox's horn and scraping an ox's horn out, so it, so it was really, really fine. And if you scrape, scrape an ox's horn out, it's like it's almost transparent. And then he got people to measure out a certain amount of wax to make these candles up, which he could put in these ox horns and measure the hours of the day so that he could give 12 hours to God and devote 12 hours of his time to the Lord, basically, to, to praying and um, preaching and what have you. And he, he added this to his taxes and all the revenues that, that, he, that he brought in. He split them into two as well. And he devoted one part for God and one part for secular issues. In case you think, well, one part for God means he was sending it all to Rome. Well, Rome had actually absolved him from paying any taxes because they were so impressed with him. But, but the second part of it, he, it was split into four. One, a quarter went to the poor, 
A quarter went to the two monasteries he started. A quarter went to education, which is the school that he set up. And another quarter went to neighbouring monasteries in Mercia, Wales, Cornwall, Gaul, Brittany, Northumbria and Ireland. All who, who he was helping out at the time. So education and the school was seen as that was part of your work for God, was educating the people. Did you want to add anything there, well, well, Bill, before I... Yeah, yeah, there's a few things I would have liked to have interjected, okay. and, and I'll, I can recap some of them now. First, I want to get back to the portion about Alfred's restoration, which I read from um, Sharon Turner, just to, to list his sources briefly, because you had said that it was apocryphal. I'm not doubting that. But Sharon Turner cites his sources um, throughout the entire section, um, three main sources, which are the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles themselves, as well as a Latin life of St. Neot, which is quite old, but Sharon Turner is not telling me how old, as well as um, Asser himself. So I just thought I'd throw that in there. At the um, Saxon Messenger website at Christogenia, I've long had posted, but I didn't even think to refer to it for this for this podcast, to be honest with you. I long had posted a book written or published in 1872, which is King Alfred of England by somebody named Jacob Abbott, A-B-B-O-T-T. And I'll link it to this podcast. The... Um, Jacob Abbott attributes to King Alfred the founding of the University of Oxford. And then he says that, at, just, to, just to corroborate some of the things that you just said, Alfred repaired the castles which had become dilapidated in the wars. He rebuilt the ruined cities. He organized municipal governments for them. He restored the monasteries and took great pains to place men of learning and piety in charge of them. He revised the laws of the kingdom and arranged and systematized them in the most perfect manner which was possible in times so rude. Alfred is attributed in by this writer as well as being a man of erudition and great learning, and and a translator of of several volumes of books, as well as a writer in his own right, what where he um, took volumes at at Asser's um, urging, he took volumes of, of Latin and Greek poetry and and translated it into his own language and and recorded his thoughts in response to the Roman poets that he had transcribed. The um, ability of Alfred to do that it is, is notable because of his early education and the disdain for learning and, and that is um, or, or, or simply the lack of care for learning, perhaps, would be a better a better way to put it, because Alfred's first tutor was a bishop named Swith Swithin, who Alfred was turned over to by his mother, who evidently died 
when um, Alfred was only six, and her name was Osberga, and and she had turned Alfred over to this Bishop Swithin, who had Alfred for several years in his care, and Alfred still passed his childhood, according to Sharon Turner, without knowing how to read. So Alfred... This is the um, the fourth son of a king did not know how to read by the time he was in his early teens, which is how I would interpret the phrase past his childhood. He learned to read late after his father had married Judith, the, the daughter of Charles the Bald. Or perhaps the daughter of Charlemagne, maybe I'm confused. So, so Alfred learned how to read later in life than would be expected of a, of a great prince and still developed this um, value for learning and, and probably because he couldn't read as a child probably appreciated it all the more when he did learn oh, yeah, how he, to read. He laments the fact that um, that there's no. He was at the right age to learn, and he wasn't able to. But I've got right. Charles the Bald written here, so I think Charlemagne was a was a, a little bit earlier. The the, the lear, he was also give instruct. He would also give instruction in virtuous behaviour and personal tutelage in literacy to his sons and his guest sons. And he would go to the school and uh, and teach. Now, they don't know for certain that it was Oxford University. I mean, that's one of the oldest universities that we have. So it could well have been. But I, I don't know that they know for certain that it was Oxford University. But he would he himself would actually teach the teach the the children that were there. He constantly had uh, Holy Scripture read aloud to him. Everyone with him. He would da- daily have divine services, psalms and prayers, and charity and distribution of alms. He commanded Werfurth, the Bishop of Worcester, to translate Pope Gregory's dialogues from Latin to English. And he summoned the three other archbishops and the priests to teach him. Day and night they would read aloud to him. Also got instructors from France, Grimbald and John. That's to compliment Asa from, from Wales. In lavish generosity, two monasteries and a jurisdiction of Exeter he gave to um, Asa. He also built two monasteries, one for his daughter, because the custom was that, that one child from every noble family would be dedicated to the church. He re- rebuilt London after that had been burnt down. Uh, as I say, the, the Pope in Rome said that they, they no longer had to pay tax in the uh, Saxon quarter at Rome. I, I think one year he also said you don't have to pay tax this year to to Rome. And Patriarch Elias of Jerusalem sent him gifts and letters. And we got a copy of, of one of those letters. And he got, and the, the wording is he got all the bishops, elder men, nobles, thanes and reeves to all work for the good of the realm. So this is a bit with, with the nation. And, and people at the time, they feared to undertake monastic life due to these Viking attacks because the Vikings would go for the monasteries they'd, they'd raid everything in there and then burn it down doing the same thing that the Saxons did two, three hundred years earlier so nobody wanted to actually join the monasteries so he imported priests and monks from Gaul 
along with their children to be educated there. So there was no celibacy among the priests at the time. They had children exactly as they're instructed to have children in the New Testament. And the priests at the time had children and they filled up these, these monasteries along with their, with their parents, with the parents who were, who were the, the, the priests there. And then they would go up to be, to be monks themselves. And by this time, even the Vikings were becoming monks. And as the record, seeing Vikings in, in these monasteries because they, they were so successful. And then he's, Go on. Oh no, I'm sorry, that was my chair. That's embarrassing. I, I got one of them as well. <laughs> Squeaky chair. It's terrible. Yeah, I, I say by, you know, at, at the time that he actually died, at, at the age of 50, he was in the middle of his translation of, um, of the Psalms. And uh, it's quite clear in that, like, every one of his introductions, he rails against the Jews. Which is quite interesting. And actually, in, in um, uh, Asser's life of King Alfred, there's one section where he's talking about this strict um, abbot and, and the monks attack him. And the wording he says is, In the manner of the Jews, they ambushed and betrayed their Lord through treachery. So the Jews themselves were seen as being you know, a, a negative force. Uh, and that, that was common, common language would be to say in the manner of the Jews. Can, well, well right. Read out and, some of it. Go on. I'm sorry. In slightly later England, uh, Jews were basically and consistently portrayed as devils. But that wasn't until the English were um, really familiar with Jews in the Norman period. Well, this is this is way back then. Every one of the Psalms. I'll just read a couple of these introductions out. Now, this is Alfred's own writing. This is for Psalm two. The text of the following Psalm is called Psalmist David. That is David's Psalm in English. It is so called because David in this Psalm lamented and complained to the Lord about his enemies, both native and foreign and about all his troubles. And everyone who sings this psalm does likewise with respect to his own enemies. So too did Christ with respect to the Jews. So it's quite clear there that the, the Jews are the enemies. And uh, another one here. This one's a particularly good one because he, he makes a distinction between the tribe of Judah and the Jews in this one. Psalm XLV. David sang this 45th psalm, thanking God that he had released him from his many afflictions. And he also prophesied that the men who are the two tribes, namely Judah and Benjamin, should do likewise, that they should thank God that he protected them from the siege and from the invasion of the two kings, Phasi, son of Remelia, and Racin, king of Syria. It was not done through the merits of King Ahaz, but through God's mercy and the merits of the elders it happened that the two kings were driven out by the king of the Assyrians. And he prophesied the same with respect to all righteous men who are at first oppressed and then spared. And he prophesied the same with respect to Christ and the Jews. So he's making a distinction there between the, the Judah and Benjamin, the two, two good tribes, and then these Jews there uh, at the end. The, the, the net, another Psalm X1, Psalm 13. When David sang this 13th Psalm, he lamented to the Lord in the Psalm that in his time there should be so little faith and so little wisdom should be found in the world. 
and so does every just man who sings it now. He laments the same thing in his own time. And so did Christ with respect to the Jews, and Hezekiah with respect to Rabshakeh's king of the Assyrians. In fact, every one of the introductions to the Psalms that I've got here, and this is in the life of um, Alfred the Great, this is an appendage to the, to the back there, every one of the introductions talks about the Jews in it, saying that um, this, is, this is a psalm that, you, that Christ would, would sing when the Jews wish to do him harm, or about the Jews wishing to do people harm. And I think it reflects the fact that he had so many enemies around him, and he sought solace in, in these psalms. Because those psalms are talking about David when he's surrounded by his enemies. And it shows you that, you know, he was well acquainted with, with the Bible. You know, this wasn't, um, it, it uh, seems just to me, mouthing the words, as it were. It seems to me that the life of Alfred does indeed, um, mirror the life of David, or, or events in the life of Alfred and his father combined mirror many of the events in the life of David. David's um, concubines were violated by his son when his son usurped the kingdom. We see that that had happened to Alfred's father. And and then David was um, put out of his kingdom and, and um, spent much time in, in seclusion as a fugitive and regained his kingdom just like Alfred the Great had. So, so there are a lot of parallels, but more importantly, it is to note that because this is true of all of the great men of our race, Alfred had the same combination of a love for learning and, and letters and ability to be courageous on the battlefield and a faith in God that David had. Oh yeah, he was def- definitely courageous on the battlefield and innovative. Uh, he, he, by say, setting up all these forts and, and having a, a standing army and uh, on shifts, as it were. And, so, and the, the naval vessels that he set up that were um, twice the size of the Viking ships and had twice as many oars, so they would go much faster and they were more stable in the water. If you think, well, these Vikings have been have been used to being at sea and making their way over to, to England to raid it, and yet um, Alfred was able to make boats that were superior to the to these Viking ones. So you know, he, he really excelled at what at what he did. And he, he rewrote the laws, or he wrote up the laws, basically, uh, including the oldest laws from Malmus, um, <clears throat> the Malmutine laws, the Celtic laws, and then the Saxon laws, and then his own laws. And he started that off with um, with an introduction with, from the Mosaic law and the Ten Commandments. So he was sort of saying himself as if he's in the same line going down from Moses as being a lawgiver. And the laws that he gave were really good as well. You know, you, you could, a man's home was inviolable. You could not violate a man's home. If somebody had killed somebody, if somebody had killed your brother, and you saw him, what you would do is you would lay siege to his home, and he would have seven days in which to come out. And he could wait in there for seven days, and then once he came out, you weren't to harm him. He had to go to court, and they would, they, they would hold him, 
so that he was in captivity. And then the word would go out to all his kin and all his friends so that they could speak up for him, which is where we get the idea today of the, of the um, 12 men that, was, that would stand on the jury. But before, it would be, it would be 12 witnesses that would say, well, well no, so-and-so wouldn't do that. You know, they, they would be speaking up for you. It would actually be your friends that were on the that were on the jury, because the idea of actually harming your own people would have been so alien to them. You, you could trust the word of, of the people around you. You could trust the word of, of your nation. It's also built into his laws that um, thirty-seven days off a year that everybody must have, and they're to do with um, religious holidays and even slaves. Slaves are to get four days off in four ember weeks to sell whatever is given to them in God's name or of whatever they can earn in their spare time. So we're told slavery was this terrible thing, but slaves actually had their own spare time and they did own possessions. They were allowed to own possessions because here's King Alfred giving them four days off a year in which to sell whatever it is that they've created and, and that they've made. Whereas we're always told that... Um, the slaves don't have any possessions. They're not allowed to have any possessions. And he, he really revived the church, but didn't, didn't interfere with it in any way. And he knew that it was important for the instruction of, of his people and important for the instruction of his saints and his noblemen and his judges. They all had to be literate and they, and they had to know the, these classics. That's why he, he would translate them into English uh, and write these introductions to them and give his thoughts on on the um, classics that he's, that he's translating. I, there really hasn't been a, a king like him, I don't think, since then, to be honest. He's, he's, um, he he's justly deserves the title of Alfred the Great. He, he really does. He's, his feast day. He's got a, he's been made into a saint by the, um, Catholic Church. And the Orthodox Church think highly of him. I don't think they've actually made him into a saint. But his feast day is October the 26th. Do you want to add anything there, Bill? No, that's good for me, Sven. I'm about, I'm about spent on my knowledge. Well, I'll just say, I got, well, as I was researching this, I was in the, um, there's, there's a bit that says about the Annals of Ulster, which were written in the 9th century. And they called the Vikings the heathen army. They also called them the apostates, the sons of death, and the Gentiles. So back then, Gentile obviously didn't mean non-Jew. It meant non-Christian. Right. They, <laughs> that's, that's, you know, is, is very telling. And the whole narrative in the, in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and in the life of Alfred the Great is, is the Christians against the pagans or against the heathens. So the Welsh, the English, the Irish, they're all classed as, as the Christians together, this united front that was being plagued by these pagans that were just destroying everything. But uh, say things turned around for, for Alfred and, um, there was a golden age, and the, you know the golden age probably lasted about a hundred years. It's known in the, in the churches that, as that was a golden age of learning and um, spirituality. And uh, some of his his family line became saints, and other ones married. One of them married um, the Holy Roman Emperor, and another one married the, the King of France. So they were all sort of into um, interrelated these these kings at the time. 
So you had you had some great kings, you know, Edward the Marcher, ones ones that were killed, but they all stood up for the church and they all took their faith really really seriously. You know, and they weren't just mouthing it; they were they were acting it and living it, and and they were rewarded for that with a with a functioning society that became the envy of of the continent, which is why William the Norman invaded because Britain was was such a wonderful place to live, merry old England. You know, this was all brought about by, started off, kick-started by Alfred the Great. And he changed the whole mentality of the Saxons, really, from that point on, I think. Well, well I can't wait to discuss the fourth protocol well, in my protocol series, because um, the, the Jews certainly did purpose to destroy religion. And, and with all the warts and, and, and imperfections of the church, there's no doubt. And all these churches, especially today, they've all been corrupted by the Jews. But the church organization really has nothing to do with the Christian religion, except that it was the vehicle through Christ, which Christianity has been transmitted for all these years. Christianity sur- survives and, and, and was founded without any church organization. The, um, the people who despise Christianity today ha- also despise centuries and centuries of great um, Germanic, Anglo-Saxon, British, um, Celtic and, and related culture. And, and despise many generations of their own ancestors. We've never achieved anything truly great in, since the fall of Rome outside of Christianity, and we never will. It's that simple. Yeah. The Jews said they will destroy religion and, and all of these neo-pagans and atheists are basically Victims of the Fourth Protocol. They sent a strong delusion, Bill. They sent a strong delusion, I think. They reject God, so God rejects them. No doubt. And they can't see the truth. They're blinded to the truth, and that's their punishment for um, for rejecting him. Well, maybe we'll make that another Sunday. Thank you, Sven, for joining us and for your presentation here today. Thank you for thank you for inviting me, Bill. I, I hope people enjoyed listening to it, and uh, I look forward to our next program together. Praise Yahweh. Praise Christ. <laughs>